Hi, I'm Katie Pride, and I own Books with Pictures in Portland, Oregon. And I'm Andrea Gilroy, and I own Books with Pictures Eugene in Eugene, Oregon. And this is... Uh, Whipcast. The Whipcast, Books with Picks cast. We're throwing around a few things that are... They'll be final, definitely, by the time this comes yeah. out. So, I guess, rather than having a quick tagline yet, uh, to be determined... What are we doing here? We are making a podcast, Indra. We are making a We're podcast. We're making a podcast because we talk to each other about books and industry stuff every day, all day long, and we thought that it might be fun to share it with other people. Yeah, that's the idea. We we love comics. We love the comic industry. Yeah. I mean, that could be qualified in a lot of ways that I'm sure we'll get into in more detail. We also dislike many <laughs> comics and dislike many things about the comics industry. But we wanted to share some, some, a curated amount of those opinions. That's right. With the world. So I've been running Books with Pictures in Portland uh, for seven years now. We opened in 2016. And just this past year, we won the Eisner Spirit of Comics Retail Award. Um, and so are one of the best comic book stores in the world, which is cool. Which we knew, but which it's nice to be recognized formally. It is. It's very validating to have someone else say it out loud, so you don't need to just whisper it to yourself <laughs> before you go to bed at night. And, uh, you know, I expect uh, Andrea's Beautiful Shop to join me in a year now. It's a it's a goal. It's on it's on the bucket list in the in the in the business journal. Um, but yeah, so we've been business partners for uh, a little over three years. We began talking about it and working on the project of Books of Pictures Eugene uh, officially in 2019. There were some talks before then, obviously, um, but we got everything going. We found a cool space. We did a lot of renovation to it, and then we opened our doors on March 3rd of 2020, <coughs> which was quite a ride. Uh, an interesting ride, <laughs> and uh, but we're here, and that's the main thing, ultimately. I'm sure we will get into discussions about how things like the pandemic and the after effects of the pandemic have affected the comics industry specifically, because it went through a huge amount of change in mm -hmm. the course of the pandemic, um, mostly for, at least financially, the better, um, and then a lot of changes, I think, ultimately for the better on the distribution side although it's yeah it's still that's a little fair. rough still a little rough still a little rough we're working uh, it out <laughs> uh so yeah so our goal on this podcast is that we are gonna open up every episode with a particular subject of shop talk um industry talk what's happened uh who's gone bankrupt what new initiatives <laughs> are coming out um who's not paying people you know a little bit a little bit of industry something something which i think today is just going to be us talking about why we got into this crazy industry to begin with. Right. Um, and then we're going to talk about a book. Uh, and our opening book for our first episode here is going to be Romaina Yee's My Aunt is a Monster, uh, which is a book from Random House Graphic that we both think is absolutely terrific. And so we're going to tell you all about it. Yeah. And we hope to, you know, like I said, try and be timely with certain industry talk. There's always something happening, but also tie it into bigger conversations and longer conversations so if you are listening out of order or out of sync or in a different time it's not going to be like we're just talking about something that happened last week it's not as useful <laughs> anymore because something else has changed in the past week but um, there's definitely always something to talk about and we want to focus on books and series that we think deserve a little bit more attention and that maybe aren't getting as much discussion um, or 
we are wanting to move the discussion into a different direction. The The opening idea would be, or I guess the opening question would be, if we want to talk a little bit about the industry that we've gotten ourselves into, like, how did we get into this industry? Sure. Yeah, so I have a real fun resume where I have never had two consecutive jobs in the same industry. Um, so before I was working at, before I opened Brooks with Pictures, I was working in tech, and before I was working in tech, I was working in publishing, and before I was working in publishing, I was an academic, and before I was an academic, I worked in IT. So I did some jobs, um, and they, on the one hand, look really incoherent on a resume, but on the other hand, are really useful for um, setting me up to know how to do a lot of things, which is kind of the small business gig, right? You have to wear all of the hats and be your own IT. And And in a lot of ways, there was a lot of through lines that are not obvious on the outside sure. that made sense as you went through. Absolutely. It's, yeah. So as an academic, I worked in the history of science and technology and uh, finished a master's and then left my PhD program ABD, never to return. But that was a project on um, cartography and map making and scientific instruments in the late 19th century in the U.S., um, sort of on the frontiers, so in the American South and then in the American Northwest. Um, Talk about telescopes for a really long time, (laughs) Uh, but also did a lot of work on technology and culture, also did a lot of work on um, sort of the ways that um, masculinity worked in some of these very homosocial spaces, and also taught Uh, a lot of writing classes and taught a lot of uh, sort of history of science and technology classes because that's what I did. Um, And uh, when it came around, uh, so when I was working immediately before starting books with pictures, I was working in a consultancy that my childhood lemonade stand running best friend and I ran um, where we helped tech startups create training programs for their new employees. Um, And so we did a lot of work with their sort of technical departments to figure out what the product they were trying to sell was, and then made training programs for their sales and services teams so that they could sell and support those products accurately, theoretically. Um, So I spent a lot of time in tech companies, some of whom grew to be very big and well-known, like Square or Dropbox, and some of which you haven't heard of because they're tech companies, and that's what happens. Um, So uh, I did that for a handful of years, and then when my then-partner and I decided to wind things down, I spent a lot of time thinking about jobs I had done that I had quite liked and uh, sort of the kind of job I wanted to have in the future, and I knew that that job had been a lot of work from home and then a lot of travel, um, and I still had kids who were quite young uh, at home with me. They're now teenagers. Um, and so I really wanted to have my next job be something that was really grounded and had a physical space where I could talk to the people I worked with and uh, the people I was supporting in person, face-to-face, ha-ha, pandemic, um, <laughs> but where I could really sort of have a grounded connection with the people I was working with and the community that I was in. I wanted to have a job that I could explain to my kids, where it was like a thing that I did that they could like get and feel good about. 
and a handful of other things. Uh, and I landed on my favorite job that I could remember ever having was uh, working as a clerk in an independent bookstore in the late 90s. Um, and so I sort of looked at my life in Portland and realized that, one, I was reading a ton of comics <laughs> and spending a ton on comics every week, and two, that a ton of my friends in Portland were comics industry people one way or another. So um, folks who worked at Dark Horse or folks who were professional cartoonists or comics writers, uh, just because that was the social sphere that I was sort of living in, um, and I was having a lot of conversations about comics, and especially about comics and politics, comics and gender, comics and feminism, comics and terrible people on the internet. <laughs> um, and that was sort of how I was spending, you know, my house parties was by having opinions about uh, ethics in comics and uh, video game journalism. <laughs> and so as I was watching this company that had sort of been breadwinner for my family for a while, um, and looking for a next thing to do, uh, I wrote up a business plan and decided that it was perfectly sane and reasonable to spend all of my savings on comic books and a lease. And so in 2016, I started Books with Pictures. And what I was really looking to do with starting the store was to create a space uh, that was comfortable for women, was comfortable for queer folks, really put work from... Um, racial minorities, people with disabilities, uh, all sorts of underrepresented creators forward uh, in the space, and also uh, reflecting the sort of my feminist goals in creating a space that was more supportive for women in fandom, it felt really important to also create a space that was really supportive for kids, um, because I, looking at the way that women shop, it was clear that women are disproportionately the carers of children. And so creating a space for kids, not just to find books, but to be comfortable and feel at home and like this was a space created for them, was a really big priority for me starting out. Um, and eight years on, uh, seven? Seven years on. I'm going to just keep doing that. You can say it both, just say it both I'll ways. I'll just say it both ways. We'll figure out the map later. <laughs> seven years on, um, probably about 30% of the business we do is in kids' books. Um, so that, that, that bet has paid off. I feel solid about that choice. Um, yeah, but really building the business both from a sense of what I wanted to be doing personally with my life and what I really felt like my community locally in Portland and what fandom at large, what I really wanted to contribute to that space and that story. How about you, Andrea? Why did you choose to join me on this bonkers road? <laughs> it's, uh, there's a lot of ways in which our, uh, our stories, uh, inter not, well, intersect isn't the right word, but if you were to like hold two sheets up of paper up to the light, um, <laughs> the, the graph looks you know, you wouldn't look like a crazy person trying to do that. It would make sense. You had found a clue. Uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't jump around careers quite so much, um, but uh, I moved out here to Oregon in 2008 after a couple of years off from undergrad to pursue a PhD. I wanted to teach at a college level. Uh, I was studying comparative literature because I had spent a lot of my previous time in undergrad uh, looking at popular culture and literature from uh, America and from Japan. And 
there wasn't a comparative literature program at the college I went to. So when I was applying for grad schools and could see like, oh, there's a thing that I don't have to choose one or the other. In fact, I can do both. Um, doing both seems to be a, a particular problem that I have uh, that continues to follow me around. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so I was accepted to the PhD program here at the University of Oregon. Um, and at the time that I was accepted, I didn't actually know that Dr. Ben Saunders and the English department here was sort of cooking up a specific comics and cartoon studies program. Um, and that was sort of in its in its true infancy when I uh, really went the year I started. The fall or winter after I started, there was a um, superhero comics show that was at the art museum on campus that was a really big hit. And the the sort of obvious popularity of that show and the, the money that it brought into the university, into the museum, and the attention that it got was the kind of impetus to say, I, I told you, like, I can I can really do this. Um, for Ben, who is now, you know, a dear friend and was eventually, would be my dissertation advisor. Um, and so I not only got to work very specifically on comics, which was something that I had always loved since I was a kid, um, but be working on comics at this university at a time when there was a lot of energy and excitement about working on comics, um, which was a lot of fun. And the calculus anyone does when working uh, long-term on a project like this, um, particularly in in the PhD program, is you're thinking, what am I going to do with this on the other side? And I really wanted to teach. That was why I got into this. And there were some discussions about whether being so niche would make sense, um, or I should be a little bit more general. And my sense at the time was, I'm really good at this niche thing, and I'm only pretty good at the regular stuff. So I'm going to do this niche thing. I'm just going to go whole heart into it. And um, I had a fantastic time. I, <laughs> uh, my, my feelings about academia are for a different podcast entirely, but uh, complex nonetheless. Um, I got to spend a lot of time teaching classes on comics at the university for undergrads. Um, I did some upper division and um, like master's level courses that I helped co-teach or post-bac courses um, at both here at the University of Oregon and Portland State University. Uh, I was involved in curating some exhibits, some that are national and well-known, and some that a couple hundred people came to and were weird for other reasons. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it was great for a time, but um, if you know anybody in and academia, you will know that adjunct life <laughs> is pretty rough. And there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of short notice and a short notice either give, being given a class or having a class taken away. Uh, you have very little power and control over your station, uh, not to mention very little pay. And my own frustrations with the system I found were really sneaking into my teaching and because that was something I cared about so much, I, I knew I had to change because it just was not going to continue. It wasn't going to be healthy. I don't know. I made the, I had this friend up in Portland. Her name was Katie. <laughs> <laughs> and she had a comic shop. Uh, and you know, for a, since we moved to Eugene, I had the sense that um, there wasn't a comic shop like the kind that I liked in town. 
Um, I come, we lived in Ann Arbor previously. Shout out to the folks at Vault of Midnight over in Ann Arbor who have a really welcoming, lovely comic shop that does exactly the kind of outreach that I think is important and we'll talk about more shortly. And there are some comic shops here in town. Some are like more toy shops that also sell comics. Some are very collector focused, but the kind of shop that is really interested in having a really wide range of material available and building communities through events and through just being a welcoming space where you want to kind of hang out and talk and not feel like you're going to break something or annoy somebody. Um, Especially in a place like Portland, which I had discovered through my work, was such a wealth of comics professionals, of publishers of people who have you know everybody from like this really new cutting edge of people working in comics to you know industry legends who are right next door um and so to not have a kind of shop like that eugene is two hours south drive from portland uh, and a comics town and a comics town with a comics program um it felt like that should be there and here i was looking for something new to do and katie was like if I ever opened a second location in Eugene, you should actually do that. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Yeah, actually, I should. <laughs> at, on the lawn at a Janelle Monet concert. Yes, which which is, is... Yeah. Perfect. Ab- absolutely perfect. So why why do we do what we do, Katie? Why? <laughs> you know... We've, we've mentioned briefly, like... It is the best so- job. It is the best job. It is difficult and miserable and makes me cry. And also, <laughs> it is the best job. Yeah, it's... it's Retail is a tough gig. Uh, you do have to have a certain personality. You have to have a certain... And especially small business retail and the kind of, like, community-driven retail that we want to do. You're putting yourself out there a lot to a lot of people. Um, and you have to be the kind of face of something. It's not just... I mean, I suppose some people could make it work by being behind a desk and and making the numbers work like a puppeteer, but that's just not how I work, and I know it's not quite how you work either. Um, I mean, I absolutely love my customers, Um, and one of the really uh, tough things about the pandemic years um, is that, one, uh, we've been growing, and especially this past year, we saw some really good growth, and two, the distribution system for comics has gotten much, much more complicated. Um, and so the parts of my job that look like that puppeteer job, uh, the bookkeeping, the payroll, the scheduling, the ordering and, uh, you know, sort of all of the, the inventory management and bill paying actually take more and more of my days. And so I have less and less time on the floor, but every time I am on the floor, Every customer who walks through the door, I'm just so excited to see why they're there, what they want, what their questions are, what I can show them that will get us both excited that day, what connections I can make for them that they couldn't have made for themselves, what, you know, and every day when I get off a work, a day working on the floor with customers all day long, I I have a half dozen stories of really rad conversations I got to have that day of that, you know, junior high kid with 20 bucks on his pocket who I gave a deal on a big stack of X-Men because he really needed to take it home with him. (laughs) Um, He'll be back. You you just, you know, once you hook him. Um, (laughs) 
Or, you know, the other day I had three different pairs of, like, dads and eight to ten-year-old daughters, and they were all shopping at the same time, and I kept mixing them up because they were <laughs> roughly identical pairs of daddy-daughter comic shoppers, and they you were just so cute. You. Exactly! <laughs> I have a couch. Please sit and become <laughs> friends. Um... And it's just, like, that piece. Um, or we, yesterday, we got to have a launch for um, the Season of the Bruja, which is a new graphic novel uh, formerly published as a single-issue series from Oni Press, um, written by Aaron Duran and drawn by Sarah Solar. Um, and it is this amazing story of a young witch who has believes that she is the last of the line of people. We'll talk about it later on the podcast. She believes she is the last of the line of witches with power from the traditional, like, pre-colonial spirits of Mexico. And then sort of has this coming of age that's also a new set of connection to culture and family. And it is so beautiful. And it comes from, like, Aaron's grandma. And it's just... I love that. And we literally sold out of the book at the signing and had to, like, run home to Aaron's house and get author copies so that we had more for the people waiting in line. Like, it was such a success. It's just such a joy to get to support that kind of work and put it into the world. And I feel like spaces that are woman-forward and queer-forward and promoting work from all sorts of folks who do not usually have a strong voice in this industry... It's just so much what I want to be and what I want to do with my days. It's just a joy. Yeah. I think when we were talking about why we sort of are sharing the business model that we share, right? Certainly one of the questions that we get asked a lot is like here in Eugene is, oh, are you related? Are you like a franchise or what are you? And, you know. The the brief answer is we're sister stores and that, and that, that gets most people what they need but when people want to know a little more you know i katie already had this fantastic shop going i'm riding the coattails of your eisner award <laughs> to my own eventually eventually <laughs> but you know there's power in a kind of shared name and a shared identity um particularly when we're both so um excited by this certain kind of community building and business model i guess mm -hmm. <laughs> business model feels you know sort of uh sanitary is but it's not the um, uh, sterile sterile <laughs> <laughs> feels kind of sterile for for what it means but nonetheless it is still a business model um and i think you know having especially you know between eugene and portland there's so many people coming and going and that kind of thing if we were further away we might not have shared names in the same way but um it's a good name. I do get lots of compliments. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> uh, but it, it's a, it's about that community and that community is important, not just because community building and making connections is important to us as people, um, but because we both think it's a sustainable way um, to run a, a business like this. Comics, like, let's face it, comic shop have reputations. Um, some earned, some not earned, depending on the particular shop. Um, but I think a lot of folks have a sense of, if I'm going to go to a comic shop, there's going to be tons of collectibles. There's maybe not a lot of stuff I can touch. It's going to be a lot of single issues. Maybe as bad as it's dusty, it's messy, it's sticky. cramped, it's sticky. <laughs> you know, it might need the door open and a little bit of fan kind of action. Um, and, you know, like, 
I worked at one of the things I did before college and all the academic stuff was I worked at games workshops. So like I've been in the thick of like really nerdy, you know, from sticky places. Um, and it's worth it because all those people are wonderful and it's fine. And you get, you know, it's, 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 it, that's, you know. But it can create a really high barrier to entry. Absolutely. Um, it can, those kinds of spaces, or even, frankly, the belief that you are going into that mm-hmm. kind of space. Yeah. Even if once you get there, it's fine. Yeah. That idea of the comic shop is the place where I'm going to need to pass a test on which Robin is which um, before I'm allowed to shop for a book, or that's a place where I should only go in if I already know what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I, you know, if I ask a question, they'll make me look silly. Or all of the art on the walls there makes me feel kind of gross. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 um, you know, there are particularly objectifying kinds of art that makes me, as a woman who is not shaped like any of those people and has organs, um, <laughs> that it's just like, well, if the people in the store are looking at women like that, I don't have any place here. There is yeah. no room for me. And even thinking of, like, kids, like, for both of us, a kid's section is important um, for many, many reasons. But, you know what? We'll get all these cool posters in sometimes, but it's like somebody ripping somebody's head off. And it's like, I, I'm, like, I can look at that. I understand what it is. But I'm not, if I put it up on the wall, like, I remember being a really scared, easily scared little kid. Um, that kind of stuff would have, like, freaked me out. I wouldn't have been able to deal with it. Um, and, like, you know, it's rad. Conan does what he does. But, uh, you know, keep it in the book. It doesn't need to be on the walls. Not everything needs to be on the walls. <laughs> I, I do I do like it, like a real sexy book. And I do like the occasional evisceration. But I think being mindful <laughs> of uh, sort of how we present our spaces is definitely a value that you and I share. Um, and it's not about being you know, prudish or delicate or botherizing. It's about making sure that the space feels welcome to everybody who wants to come into it. Yeah. And it's and it's such a concern because it's the sort of thing, another thing we'll get asked about sometimes, I'm sure you've been asked this question a lot as well, is like, why is this like messaging about comics are for everyone so important? Why... Do you put, like, pride flags up in your windows if you're not, like, specifically a, a gay bookstore? It's like, well, because, as you were saying earlier, before you walk in, there's only so much you can know about a space. So it is your job, if you want people to be welcome, to, like, yell it. And it's not saying that other shops aren't welcoming. You know, the shops in town are great. They're, they're, they do their things. But, like, I don't want somebody coming by to have to do that extra work to feel like they have to double check or they have to, I want them to know from 10 feet away before they come in the door that they're in the right place, that they're in the right place place for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, similarly, it's always been a priority of ours, uh, that you should be able to look around the store visually and that the books faced are at least half not white men, Mm -hmm. that the thing (laughs) you see on the front of the book is not a white dude. Um, and that sometimes means making choices about what books get turned spine out and what books get faced out, um, to make sure that if you walk into the store and look at the shelf, it is not a shelf full of books about white dudes. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's a real, uh, it is easier now than it was seven years ago. (laughs) Um, like a lot easier now than it was seven years ago. Um, but it's still a conscious choice and a deliberate sort of shelving. Yeah. 
um, and poster hanging and art choosing and all of those things to and make a space that stock reflects... choosing too. You know, I mean, both of us would love to have the Library of Comics Alexandria right. or the Comics Library of Alexandria. Either yeah. way, <laughs> um, but you know, neither of us have room. Nobody has that room. Uh, so the choices you have to make sometimes about, well, I'm keeping two or three copies of that book or books like that on on my shelves. Not because they sell like hotcakes, but because it's important to me to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that I'm not going to have 15 copies of this other book that might sell hotter, but is going to take up space that I want to be available for other things. Yeah. Well, and I feel like I, I feel like this is our first one of these, mm-hmm. and there's actually lots of things in here that mm-hmm. I want to drill down on later. I'm like making sure. mental notes of yes. like, you know what, we should have a whole episode where we just talk about community events mm-hmm. and what they're for and what they do. Um, but we probably don't need to talk to, about all of that right now. There's plenty more, of course, that we could talk about along these lines, but uh, that's kind of the point of, you know, making a podcast is to not use all of your ideas on the first episode. <laughs> and we will definitely, these things will uh, circle around in different ways and be applied and, and poked at in different ways as we continue to talk about a lot of issues about the industry, what it means to run a business, what it means specifically to run a comics business. And um, part of that, of course, is comics, I guess. And reading occasionally. And reading occasionally some comics. Yeah. Uh, I am so far behind on comics. A very frequent refrain in the shop is, have you read this? Is it any good? I read the first issue. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it ends, but you don't want to know that anyway. <laughs> it's like, I know so. it's on issue eight now, but I did read the first issue and I did like it. Uh, but for this project in particular, we're going to be focusing on uh, sort of things that are collected. Um, either things that were published as a whole graphic novel or collected arcs of things that came out serially. Um, And part of that is because we want to be really sort of covering um, comic storytelling in a more mm, chunky way. That's not a good word. That's That's not not a good word, but it's also true. Uh, (laughs) The truth isn't always pleasant. (laughs) Uh, Your source for chunky comics. (laughs) There it is. There's the tagline. There's the tagline. Uh, yeah, but also, you know, I think it, it can be easy, and, and as a particular, like, fandom thing, right, to want to have a new issue and talk about it. And I think for both of us, in, in a broader sense, like, our idea about what makes comic shops a very good space for community building and, um, uh, and making connections with people is that you have this sort of serialized format and so people come back every week or every couple of months to talk about the things that they love um but the truth of the matter is and something we'll certainly be talking about a lot is most people who engage with comics these days don't engage with single issues they engage with graphic novels and both of us sort of think of our shops as like specialty bookstores more than comic shops sometimes it it feels bad to say that, but it also kind of more accurately describes... I mean, I love a single issue. I yeah, love them as sure. a medium. I love them as objects. I love them as a particular kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I love all of that. And I read, well, right now, just X-Men. But boy, howdy, do I read <laughs> X-Men, X-Men, gives, X-Men every single your, week. X-Men gives you plenty. <laughs> um, uh, but I, you know, I do read single issues every yeah. single week, and I love them. But I do find that when I'm working with especially newer comics readers in the store, well, it's, it's both, right? Mm-hmm. It's newer comics readers, but also a lot of comics readers 
who are in a very different point in their lives and who have kids at home or have really engaging jobs and who just want to be able to sit down and read a volume of something. Yeah. Um, or maybe they prefer the storage format of mm-hmm. not having comics in boxes, but rather having comics whose spines they can see on their shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for a shift to trades. I would be very sad if single issues went away. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy them. Yeah. I think um, it's, be- I think the, the, the serial format is magical in so many ways. Um, but there are a lot of reasons too, that even things that are traditionally in single format, like superhero books actually tend to read better in trades because there's an expectation that that's going to be how it's collected. And so, but man, when a single issue is good, it's good. It is good. I love them. (laughs) I really, really do. Um, and, uh, I love the staples. I even love the ads. I came across a vintage AD&D monstrous, uh, compendium ad the other day, and I was so delighted by it. I'm, I am a little sad that the ads in a lot of contemporary comics are only in-house ads. I, was, you know, I miss the old Super Nintendo glove. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for this project, um, because of the ways that we see our customers engaging with them, and because of some of the really interesting turns in the market... Uh, we're going to be engaging with things that are collected, uh, comics with spines, comics that sit on shelves like books. Um, and the one we're talking about today is called My Aunt is a Monster. It's by Remena Yi. Um, it is from the imprint Random House Graphic, which uh, is part of the Ping and Random House um, publishing machine, uh, <laughs> which is um, enormous. Um, but Random House Graphic it has not actually been along, around for very long. I was going to say, a, they're just a couple years a press, old. They're just a few years old. Um, publisher so, at Random House Graphic was Gina Gagliano, mm-hmm. um, who Random House, I believe, actually poached from First Second, right. where she had been... She the, revolutionized that line. Absolutely. Like, the reason that First Second is the place to go for kids' mm-hmm. graphic novels is because Gina was... Because of the work Gina did there. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, while she was there, she also did a master's on a uh, master's degree on the category of young adult as a category in publishing um, books. So she's brilliant. Uh, she has a podcast on comics publishing at which uh, graphic novels TK. I believe. Graphic novel TK. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, she's so smart. If you if you are interested in the business of comics publishing, she is absolutely a person you should listen to um, and for listeners uh, her role as like a publisher what does that mean compared to say an editor or so my understanding uh i'm, I'm not an expert on this part of the thing <laughs> i just sell them um but it's it's the person who's responsible for uh sort of deciding what the line looks like so what books do they acquire what are the priorities in publishing what is the what is the mission statement of this set of books? Right. Um, equivalent of like a TV showrunner versus writer. Sure, and exactly, and like exactly. So it's sort of a more holistic role. And she's um, not currently there anymore. No, but she's we're, not. We're waiting to hear what she's doing next because whatever it is, it'll be brilliant. Exactly that. Um, so yes, uh, but anyway, this comes from Random House Graphic, um, whose project is putting out really beautiful books for uh the kids and young adult markets um but this book Romana Yi uh Rume- it is Romani's second book her first book was called Seance Tea Party yes and that was through first second I thought it was also Random House Graphic it could be also Random House Graphic um and and that's not even true there's uh two other there's comics two other. she did before according to her about the author yeah so her her 
first book that we had heard of, she's published a couple of other things through smaller and regional publishers, but um, her previous book, Seance Tea Party, also very lovely, was also a uh, Random House graphic book. Yep. Um, and this one, uh, why did we choose this book, Andrea? Why did we choose this book? We chose this book because... <laughs> um, so, we were talking about there were lots of different versions of what kind of book we should choose and when and, and why. And we thought a particularly a kid's book would be a great place to start because it's, uh, it's a, a passion of both of our projects is building the kids section of the store. Uh, it's also a place of huge growth in the market and where a lot of like new readers are coming from in more ways than one, right? They're learning to read and they're learning to read with comics and learning to become comic readers. Um, it's also, we're going to talk a lot about like, it is not the sort of book that when you look at initially, you say, ah, this is a formal tour de force um, that is doing lots of fascinating and complicated things. Uh, but it actually is also doing lots of fascinating, complicated things. Um, and also is, is doing really, like, beautifully and with panache. Like, they're not even thinking about it, doing some really amazing work with representation and diversity. Um, that that all comes together to make this really fabulous little book that you know also we just thought probably a lot of people aren't talking about yeah um it is extremely beautiful the cartooning in it is absolutely lovely um it also i mean one of the things that i love about it quite honestly is that it hits a lot of sort of within the history of cartooning it hits a lot of those tintin notes mm -hmm. like it feels like a very classic children's adventure book mm -hmm. Except that our <laughs> protagonists are not white and not boys and not all able-bodied and not, um, you know, on a on a quest of empire. Like there are so many ways that it hits all of the pleasure and joy of those very traditional, like boys' adventure comics, mm -hmm. while also at the same time calling into question joyfully whether the things about those comics that make them sort of a bad fit for this year of 2023, <laughs> um, whether those are necessary for those con that sort of story to be joyful. Right. Yeah. Um, so many, yeah, uh, having read and enjoyed a lot of Tintin and occasionally having it in the store, but often being like, well, you might want to have a conversation <laughs> before you read this uh, with a kid who has never been exposed to it before. The, uh, the fun of it is the simplicity. Like, you have a, an adventure that is packed into one book. It, it's, you get to see all kinds of cool places and spaces and people doing cool things. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very primal joy. We like an adventure story. Um, but yeah, historically, adventure stories... Uh, of all sorts have been part of colonialist projects, part of highly masculinist point of views, white supremacy, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. So to have it and say, hey, uh, we can have, like, it's not, that's, it's not just like an Hergé style that flattens everything and makes it easy to understand because you can understand all things. It's actually willing <laughs> to kind of have this, um, the sense of mystery, the sense of adventure, the sense of fun that, like you said, not just separate from those things, but in fact kind of is pushing on um, those ideas and uh, <laughs> assumptions, those assumptions. Yeah. Those uh, a priori assumptions about what makes an adventure story an adventure story. So in this adventure story, what happens? I'll start and then I'm mm -hmm. going to gesture at you. Fair. Sounds um, great. So our protagonist is a girl named Safia. 
Uh, Safia lives in a bookshop with her parents. Um, Safia is blind. Um, and Safia's uh, bookshop burns down. Uh, and her parents are killed. And she is sent to live with her nearest living relative. And her nearest living relative is... But it's a full long Walter name. Walter Ann Hakeem <laughs> Whimsy. Yes, her, her, her long-lost, forgotten aunt, a distant relative, Walter Ann Hakeem Whimsy. Uh, the world's greatest explorer, we will discover soon enough. Uh, although we don't know anything uh, about her, nor does Safia in those early pages. She just knows that there's an aunt who is willing to take her in. Right. Yeah. And the rest of her family is all in Cairo and Delhi. And so her only nearby aunt relative is this aunt who's willing to take her in, uh, who lives on a terrifying house on a terrifying hill, um, where it is rumored that if you wait long enough, you will see a monster behind the window. Um, but we approach the house anyway, and what we find inside is a housekeeper. It's a friendly, friendly housekeeper, a, a cute little wiener dog statue, some cute cat statues. Um, you know, it, it looks like your classic knick-knack filled house on a hill, uh, perhaps a little spooky trees outside. Um, but otherwise a very friendly place. And interestingly to talk about like questions of diversity and particularly disability in this case, one of the first things that happens to Sophia when she walks in is that she knocks over this trinket, uh, this cat statue and you know, she gets scared. You know, she's of course concerned about her space in this world and her place in this world and the first thing she does is knock something over and break it uh, and this is of course our first introduction as well to aunt whimsy who um, comes out and responds you know she doesn't she puts it back up without even mentioning it and has this this meeting with Sophia for the first time and it's very kind and is very lovely and uh lies to her in this moment. So we, as the sighted reader looking at the page, see that Walter Ann Whimsy is a big blue monster with horns and a third eye in the middle of her very wolfish forehead. Um, and some chicken feet. And chicken feet and a beautiful sort of dapper um, blouse and, and plaid pants situation. And, and when she greets her niece, she says, don't mind my fuzzy gloves mm -hmm. um, to excuse her fuzzy hands. And it's interesting because on the one hand, this person is being so kind to this little girl. Um, and on the other hand, is lying to her. And I know that for me as a reader, I was very torn between wanting to be like, oh, she is lovely. And also, like, you wouldn't pull that on a sighted kid. Yeah. Like, because you couldn't. You couldn't. Right. Um, but you were, you are taking advantage of this girl's disability. And even more so, it's a moment of, like, she does make a what is a true connection, it's it's a lie of omission as much as anything, right? She says that she's disfigured in an accident. And mm -hmm. so for that reason, she has some sense of uh, Sophia's sadness and her difficulty responding to this accident that has killed her parents and also that other people judge her by looking at her. Uh, and so they have this moment of connection that is true, yeah. but also isn't fully true mm -hmm. uh, in ways that will, of course, come back to haunt their relationship. And then Walter Ann uh, introduces herself as uh, the former world's greatest adventurer <laughs> um, who used to travel uh, to all sorts of places and is now retired. 
Um, her name seems to be Walter Ann because her parents were Walter and Ann, and she's Walter Ann, which is also delightful. Uh, and uh, Hakim is her father's last name, but her father had inherited uh, from a, her, his own long lost relative an estate and become the Lord Whimsy. So, <laughs> hence, this is how we get to Walter Ann Hakim Whimsy, um, which is. Again, uh, a really good name. There's a couple of really good names that that pop up. I'm also a big fan of uh, Professor Dr. Choi. (laughs) But Walter Ann inherited from her parents, Walter and Am, um, the family business, which was a magazine, Observations of the Strange and Wondrous, or Observations for short, which covered subjects like mysterious animals, men with very long and strong mustaches, tiny ancient (laughs) coins... Um, and, uh, all sorts of supernatural and, uh, mundane matters of interest. The world's largest omelet, an animatronics parade, tap dancing flamingos, and so forth. Um, and so when Walter Ann was an adult, she and her beloved nanny, um, went on adventures together to gather information for, uh, the magazine, which she became editor of, um, and then... Uh, there was a terrible accident. I mean, there was some sort of accident involving uh, one last adventure that went wrong. We're not given the details yet. We do eventually get more information. Uh, but they're declared dead. Dead, and they sort of want to keep it that way. At least uh, Aunt Whimsy wants to keep it that way for a while. And so they were t- But I mentioned Professor Dr. Choi. <laughs> Life is going well for them all, but Professor Dr. Choi decides that she's going... Uh, excuse me. In fact, this is part of the point. Um, they... Uh, Professor Dr. Choi is taking credit for a discovery and that they're going to go into this this cool lost city, um, which it turns out happens to be the city where uh, Aunt Whimsy had her quote-unquote accident. So not only is, is Aunt Whimsy upset that they're taking the credit for this discovery, but also concerned that uh what happened to them what happened to her when she went into the to the to this lost city is a monster as we know um and in part because she didn't quite know what she was getting in for so on the one hand she's concerned about uh, professor dr Choi, a childhood friend now rival uh, who they also call pineapple tart because she liked pineapple tarts (laughs) (laughs) and because it's a nice thing to you know spit at somebody oh that pineapple tart (laughs) yes so now it is time to go on another adventure. One last adventure. One last adventure. Um, and so they gather themselves up to go on adventure, and Aunt Whimsy figures out how to drape herself in enough scarves to sort of hold hide her blue wolfish nature. Sophia is thrilled because she has been reading these stories and adventures her whole life, and is so excited to finally get to go on an adventure herself. Um, and Miss Catherine has always loved adventuring and so she comes along so miss catherine it's such an interesting piece of found family the three of them together because this is this lifelong companion who was her childhood nanny and then just became like they're not lovers yeah i at first i thought they were i I did too absolutely certain that that they were and then that you get a little bit more and you're like wait significant age gap (laughs) Um, and I really genuinely think that they are, I don't, I don't think that Miss Catherine is a paid employee. I think at mm-hmm. this point they are companions and housemates and like, yeah, just partners 
in this life, Miss Catherine is significantly older than Walter Ann, and Walter Ann is significantly older than Safia, and they are all kind of their own sort of loners, and then they just sort of fall in together. It's very nice. <laughs> uh, on the adventure, we get a new set of characters from a new group. On a uh, boat. On a, on, the, on a boat. They're on this cruise to get to uh, this location in, with this lost city. Um, and uh, we're introduced to the character of Hebe, um, who is part of... What is the name of that group? I will find it. We'll find it. I have a tart! There's a whole side bit about that group. Aha! So Hebe is part of... Uh, which we don't discover until a little bit after we've gotten to know them and her... Uh, what seem to be big siblings, but might not be again. Because she's part of the Bureau of Suspicious Intent, um, which seems to be like an anti-FBI. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's job is to produce chaos, literally. Uh, and some people have fun chaos, and some people cause bad chaos. Um, and we find out, in fact, that Nanny was a part of that group. Uh, and that's how she got to know Walter Ann and Walter Ann's parents was through... Uh, they're kind of being on opposite sides of some of these events. Um, and Hebe and Sophia also develop this deep relationship of friendship and seeing each other and feeling like loners um, that, you know, is going to be tested as we discover Hebe's true intent for being on this ship, which is to cause chaos. In a lovely little bit of reference, the symbol of the Bureau of Suspicious Intent is a golden apple, which is, of course, a Discordian symbol from way back. Um, and so, yeah, the the agency whose job is to cause chaos is a, is a beautiful Discordian golden apple. Uh, he decided, and so when she, Sophia introduces her to Aunt Whimsy... He was able to realize that something is not... This is quite different than what Sophia thinks. And is pokes around and, and finds out that not only is this person the same person that was presumed dead, but also, in fact, uh, a monster. Uh, and decides to reveal that um, at a moment in a during a party to, of course, produce uh, intense chaos. The most chaos possible. It's very chaotic! It's very chaotic. This is a... Uh, a moment, uh, of course, Professor Dr. Choi is supposedly going to be getting a reward, a ward, and then uh, Whimsy is revealed to not only be alive, but also monstrous. Uh, and so, a lot. Of, not only is it chaos in the party, it's chaos for this new friendship that has now been broken, and it's chaos for Sophia and Whimsy, who now have to sort of deal with the fact that Sophia has realized something slightly different is happening. It's right. not just a disfigurement. And while... Catherine and uh, Walter Ann are not romantically involved. It does feel the sort of summer vacation girls' friendship that happens between Safia and Dikib is very much that sort of tween intensity of like summer love. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, there's no kissing. It is not explicitly gay, but <laughs> it's real gay. They do make a print. They yeah. They do make a pinky promise, and you know there are pretty serious like extended gazes. And then Hebe does this job that is her job for her siblings and or coworkers, um, and does a good job of it. But in doing so, disrupts both her relationship with Safia and Safia's relationship with her aunt, and it's really really sad. 
It is very sad. Also, her aunt turns into a giant monster when distressed, and that's real cool. Like, just the cartooning around. Real cool. And, and uh, you know, to speak to the cartooning again, like, uh, the lines get fuzzier, and she starts taking up the whole page. And for someone who is drawn, you know, clearly she's a sort of anthropomorphic creature of some sort. We know that she's quote-unquote a monster. Like, the monstrousness of it comes through in a very, very different way. It's not like... Well, now she just has sharper teeth and claws. It's like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> she actually kind of, even like the way the eyes are drawn and the tears are this kind of weird, like they remind me of some weird anime where like every single eyelash is drawn and the tear kind of globs out and something you're just like, Ugh. <laughs> and it kind of has that texture to it. Yeah. Um, in a way that's not calling a ton of attention to itself. It feels at a place in the book, but also. It's very dynamic. It's a very it's dynamic very, shift. Yeah. That does a lot of work. And then after our chaos pauses and everybody wakes up from their various forms of, of, of passing out, um, Safia and her aunt have to have it out. Um, and Safia calls out her aunt's lie in a way that, I mean, I this is my favorite scene in the whole book, with the possible exception of the invisible pet, which we'll return to. Um, <laughs> but Safia doesn't say oh it's all right you took me in we can let everything else go Sophia gets angry and says you didn't tell me the whole truth were you ever going to did you think it was okay for you to hide things from me so you can pretend to be a normal person because i can't see mm -hmm. um and there is a beautiful panel of uh aunt whimsy's face as she sort of really realizes what she's done yeah, realizing that that's not intent. That's certainly not her intent. But it wasn't that's her certainly intent. What happened? It, you know, but she was she was cruising on this lie because it was easier mm -hmm. um, than being honest. And her and Sophia, you know, I think like what we do with people we love, who are those people who are worth the fights, doesn't say like, well, it's okay, we can get on with it. She says, I am still mad, and I don't know if I can forgive you, uh, but I also know that you were trying your best. And we can, we can move forward, but no more lies. And that's just, it's a, it's a beautiful, like, of a kid standing up for themselves. Yeah. And also, like, an admission that, like, we all mess up yeah. <laughs> a lot. It doesn't make it right, and it doesn't make this easy. But also, like, I know you weren't trying to do it, but it still really hurt. And yeah. It's such good <laughs> modeling of, like... I don't know, the relationships we wish we had with our parents and our children. <laughs> like, I, there's a little bit of wish fulfillment there of, like, no, this is how you do it, right? You just, you say your feelings, and then they hear you, and then they apologize. <laughs> um, it's a terrific, terrific scene. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it really is part of this book just having this really deep heart mm -hmm. um, and sort of emotional genuineness, even though 90% of it is kind of camp goofiness. It's pretty goofy. I mean, even some of the stuff between Pineapple Tart and Walter Ann is like, you know, clearly a childhood rivalry of always trying to one-up each other. Walter Ann slash Aunt Whimsy, like, finds... Professor Dr. Choi, annoying, but deeply, deeply loves her. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, deeply, deeply loves them. And, <laughs> but also, like, you know, Professor Dr. Choi is happy to take a lot of this credit for things that they know they didn't quite do, mm -hmm. but is also deeply moved when they discover that Whimsy is still alive. Yeah. 
Um, and so just the depth of the relationships through these really... I mean, part of the... I don't think with every book we do, we'll do quite such a deep plot dive. But part of what's fascinating about this book when we were talking about it is a lot happens. Yeah. Quite a lot happens. And this feels like it might feel very rushed. But it's a pretty easy read, and it makes sense as it moves from scene to scene, which is the mark of a really talented storyteller. Mm -hmm. um, it is easy to make 32 pages seem like too much information and way too long. <laughs> and it is easy to sit down, particularly to a kid's book, and read it in an hour and feel like, well, that was great, but like, I'm done. Right. And this strikes a very beautiful balance of having a ton of stuff, having a ton of subtext, moving you along. Uh, in, frankly, a very impressive way. Like, this is very impressive storytelling. Yeah. Um, agreed. So then we come to the end of the book, which I don't actually think that we need to tell you how it ends, but the day is saved. Um, relationships are mended. Um, or are they? They are. Everybody's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> it's all going to be fine. There's not a cursed object that may or may not have been passed between people. It's fine. It's going to be fine. It's fine. <laughs> Um, and it really just comes to a really sweet, uh, the end of this adventure, but I would read six more of these adventures. Yeah. Like, um, there, there is plenty of open-ended space at the end. There is plenty of a sense that Sophia, who is, you know, still a kid, is, is going to find her way into a life of adventure that suits her. And it's just... Absolutely stinking wonderful. Yeah. And we do finally get to see Lord Fauntleroy, uh, who is previously an entirely invisible animal. We only know exists because they leave hair that makes people Wait, sneeze all we, over the place. Yeah, do we, do. we? Where is he? How did I miss this? Uh, when do you see him for the first time? I mean, I was concussed. Uh, oh, there Yeah, there you finally get to see him there. He's... Uh, you see him for the first time right when they go into the city. Oh! He stops, and he, he you find... We know that he's stoned away because we've seen little hairs floating around, so we, we know that. But then he finally comes out to be like, Hey, no, no, you've got to do, do this thing. Um, no, there he is, too. Um, yeah! Uh, and so we finally get to see this strange little, like, Cousin It monster. Who's their pet. Who's their pet, and who... Saves uh, one of the Bureau of uh, Malicious Intent, uh, one of Hebe's older siblings slash people is, is like hiding a knife that they're going to cut with. And, and surprise, Lord Fauntleroy comes out and bites them. And that's when we get his, uh, his reveal. And he's a weird little grass creature um, who's wonderful. And yeah, uh, we're left with enough open-ended that there could be five more books in the series and enough that... This is that encapsulation of a moment of adventure of a kind of story that is also very conscious of the kind of story it is. Uh, there's lots of framing about in the narrative, in the opening, and in the closing, in in more prose. You know what we would think of as captions, and um, that say like there's these once upon a time stories. This is a once upon a time, uh, and it ends in that way too, and sort of gives us a nice wrap up. It's a it's a it's a fantastic fantastic kids book. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic book, but. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that, um, you know, I think that it's some, uh, I don't even know which category of people, publishers, um, are calling this sort of book uh, sort of a hybrid comics book. It does have a lot of prose. It has a lot of chunky bits of prose. 
Um, and it also just plays real fast and loose with the paneling mm-hmm. in a way that I really, really enjoy. Um, that sometimes we'll have a whole page that is just prose with a picture, and sometimes we'll have a page that is a giant picture and then panels and then word bubbles. Um, but just the spaces between sort of what we'd think of as traditional panel-by-panel comics and all sorts of other illustrative work (laughs) is, it's really stunning. Um, And drawing a lot of really fascinating, from a wide array of influences. We've talked a little bit about the adventure stories. I think, like, you know, I don't know Romini Yi, but I I definitely know the stack of manga that she was reading. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because I was reading them, too. Um, and the ways in which, like, that is clear both in the style of paneling and in the visual style and in the storytelling and the movement, um, even in some of the action scenes. But then also what we would think of as more traditional all-ages books, like your traditional kind of graphic books. It has a lot in common with those. It has a lot in common with picture smile. books and smile yeah. and that kind of stuff. Uh, and even more traditional picture books that are more text-heavy yep. with some illustrations. So it's also drawing from the really beautiful array of... Of, and and it's been fun to see more and more books that take from so much um, and aren't necessarily wearing it on their sleeves or taking it and transforming it. And But it's not just like, well, this was clearly from this one tradition or this was clearly from that one tradition. But mm-hmm. I'm taking and choosing from all of these things and producing something that is new and beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so with that, I guess we should go ahead and wrap up. Probably. Um, what, uh, what Eisner should this win? Um, I, <laughs> um, I think Romina Yi could definitely be a best newcomer mm-hmm. award winner. Um, and then I also think that this is a solid contender for, I think the categories in Eisner's are like best. It's early, middle and teen, I believe right now. So I would smack, put this in the smack middle. in the middle. Space. Yeah. This is, this is a middle grade, just stunner Mm -hmm. um and i also think that from a gifting perspective you could give this to anybody in grade school this is beautiful for anybody between grades you know two and five yeah probably Um, some vocabulary that might be above some second graders but uh it's a high reading vocabulary second grader and then I also think that any adult who loves adventure stories, who loved Tintin, or more recently has loved Adventure Man, Mm -hmm. I think that this book is also a book that they would just absolutely fall in love with. It's got so much heart, and it is so stunningly drawn. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. It's, uh, one hopes it gets all the awards. Artists for kids' books tend not to get nominated for things like artist writer, penciler, art, that kind of stuff, which is, you know... It is what it is. I get but. it. <laughs> um, but I, it's just, yeah, it's real, it's real good. It's real good. Uh, like I said, probably depending on the book, it will, conversations will shift between whether we're talking a lot about how the plot works, what, how the story points connect. We're still figuring this thing out. We're still figuring it out. Um, but in this one, the plot is a lot of what, like, it's, it's, it, it is, it, the plotting, as we said, is part of the sort of formal panache of it. Well, and it's all, I mean, a book with a blind protagonist, a book with a non-white protagonist, a book with a casually they them non-binary mm-hmm. adversary who <laughs> it's just not a thing they're just a they them character in the story um one of the members of the bureau of 
malicious intenders, suspicious, whatever. <laughs> the Discordians. <laughs> the Discordians is um, clearly playing with like what we would normally consider our gendered idea of clothing. It's not. Um, it's just happening in the background. And teen tween girls falling in love. Yeah. Just all there on the page. No very special episode about it. <laughs> um, it is such a sincere, gorgeous, fun, silly piece of work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you should read it. And you should read it. You should get a copy from your friendly local comic shop. If you don't have a friendly local comic shop, both of our stores ship. Yeah. So you can find us <laughs> at bookswithpictures.com or bookswithpicturesEUG.com. Yep. Or all of our links are on a link tree too, which is easier because we're on all of the socials. And so link tr.ee slash bwp underscore eug. Is it underscore? Okay. <laughs> It's underscore. That's okay. We should probably make a cute little outro that just encapsulates all of that. I'm sure we will. <sighs> make your, what is it, Anne Lamont's shitty first draft? Yeah, exactly. That's shitty first draft? Done. Done. Comics! <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Books with Pictures podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support us, please share it with others, post it on social media, and leave a rating and review. It really does help. You can find all the ways to follow us and get in touch at linktree backslash bwpcast. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash B-W-P-C-A-S-T. This podcast is produced by Katie Pride and Andrea Gilroy with additional support from Milkfed Criminal Mastermind. It is edited by Sean Gilroy. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.